Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are excited about the upcoming quarter of classes, and Father, we're excited about the relationships that are going to form in those classes and the way that people are going to be transformed more and more into the image of your Son and more and more into the servants that you would have them be. And I just pray, Father, that these classes will enrich the lives of all those who attend. Father, I pray that you will send many people to be with us, people who are seeking to know more about you and your son and seeking to know more about what it means to be a, a man or a woman of God. And Father, we thank you in advance for those people that you are going to send to us. And we just pray, Father, that we will be shining lights for you to them so that they will truly see how God works in our lives. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the people who are gathered here. We thank you for their love that that they have for you, the love that they have for each other, the love that they have for your word. And as we begin talking about the book of James and we start talking about the man James himself, we just pray, Father, that, that you'll bless us and you'll help us see in James our lives and help us see in James transformation how we can be transformed into servants, into slaves of our master, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray this through his name, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. The book of James begins this way, James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. That's how the letter begins, the letter that we've come to know as the book of James. And it's a letter that we'll be studying in more depth over the next several weeks. It's James. It's a letter written approximately... 15 years after the death of Jesus Christ, and it's written to Jewish Christians who had been scattered from Jerusalem, scattered like billiard balls on the break when persecution broke out after Stephen was stoned. Our primary focus today won't be on those that the letter was written to. Instead, it will be on the letter's author. It will be on James. And we'll focus on James because understanding James's story will help us understand and appreciate the letter that he wrote. Because I want you to know this is a remarkable letter. And it's written by a remarkable man. And he has a remarkable story that really needs to be told. You see, James's story is a very human story. It's a story that's very much a family drama. And ultimately, James's story is a dramatic conversion story. So let's look at who this man is, this man who wrote the letter, James. You know, there's a few different candidates for the identity of the author of the book of James because James was a very popular name in New Testament times. There are several prominent men named James who are mentioned in our Bibles. In fact, two of Jesus' 12 apostles were named James. There was James, the brother of John, and he and his brother John were known as the Sons of Thunder, And there was also James, the son of Alphaeus. But we're quite certain that neither one of those James is the author of this letter, this book. We're pretty sure that James, the brother of John, didn't write the book because, well, he was was martyred. He was killed before this letter was even written. We're also pretty certain that James, the son of Alphaeus, didn't write this letter because he simply didn't occupy that kind of position in the church Nothing that would suggest that he would be the author of this treasured letter. So that leaves our James. James, the younger brother of Jesus. And that's really our starting point in this story of James. 
with a knowledge that James is the younger brother of Jesus. His older brother is Jesus. We should probably stop and pause for just a moment and think about that. Can you imagine what it was like to be Jesus' younger brother? That had to be kind of difficult. That's a question you'll be able to discuss more in your small groups this week. But what was it like to be Jesus' little brother? We all know that families and family relationships are kind of complicated. Those of us with brothers and sisters know that especially sibling relationships can be very complicated. And we have no way of really knowing what Jesus' family life was like. I'm sure that Mary was a wonderful mom. But I just imagine at times she got frustrated and was probably at least tempted to say something along the lines of, James, why can't you be more like your brother? It couldn't have been easy being Jesus' little brother. Having Jesus as your big brother had to present challenges. Well, like I said, we don't know for sure what life was like for James or for his family as they were growing up. But we do know for sure that Jesus and James didn't grow up in a vacuum. They grew up in a family. They grew up in, grew up in a real flesh and blood family. From the sixth chapter of Mark, we know that Jesus wasn't an only child and he wasn't even an only son. He was the oldest of Mary's children. But we know that Mary had five sons, Jesus, James, Joseph, sometimes known as Joseph, also Simon and Judas, who we also know as Judah, who also wrote a book in our Bibles And we know that Mary also had some daughters. We don't know the number, and unfortunately, we don't even know their names. But we do know that she had a large family. Jesus had many siblings. See, this was a family that did real family things and dealt with real family issues. And this family had some issues. They had some real issues. And those issues centered on Jesus, and they centered on what the rest of the family thought about the path that Jesus' life was taking Like I said, we can only speculate about what it was like to grow up with Jesus, but we know that James and his brothers thought about Jesus as he began his ministry that they weren't pleased with what was going on. See, James and the other brothers had some big issues with their big brother. If you'll turn with me now to the Gospel of John, I'll be in chapter 6. And we're going to pick up the story of Jesus and James and the other brothers at a really pivotal pivotal. You know, that's, I'm not just slow, I can't even speak. A pivotal, pivotal point in the story, Jesus' story. He's well into his ministry. He has amazed the crowds with his teaching. He's astounded the crowds with his miracles. And those crowds who consider themselves to be Jesus' disciples are growing larger and larger. But right here, at this point, the momentum has been stopped. It's been stopped because Jesus has started saying some things that make people really uncomfortable. He's saying some difficult things. He's teaching some difficult concepts. Jesus has been saying things like this in verse 53 of chapter 6. He said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. 
Those are hard teachings. Those are difficult teachings. And in verse 60, we read this. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And in verse 66, we read, from this time, many of his disciples turned back, and they no longer followed him. It's a hard teaching, and many couldn't accept it, and that many included James, and it included his brothers. Still in the book of John, now in chapter 7, in verse 1, we read this. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe him. See, at this moment, as many of Jesus' disciples were deserting him, his brothers arrived on the scene. They arrived on the scene and they made it very clear to Jesus that they are with the deserters. They don't believe in Jesus and they don't believe in his teachings either. Now, you may be kind of scratching your head in confusion about that passage I just read. Because it is kind of a confusing passage. In fact, if we just read verses 3 and 4 by themselves, this passage can appear like Jesus' brothers are giving him good, sound, supportive, encouraging advice. Kind of sounds like a pep talk. Sounds like this. You know, Jesus, you ought to leave here and you should go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. But then we have verse 5, and verse 5 says, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. So how can we reconcile a pep talk from the brothers with their unbelief? Well, the answer to that is we don't. We don't reconcile it because that's not what's going on. James and his brothers aren't giving their big brother good, sound, supportive advice. This isn't a pep talk. In fact, his brothers are mocking him. They're mocking the path he's chosen. They're mocking the claims that he's been making about himself. They're mocking the fact that many of his followers have now deserted him. It's really hard to interpret Jesus' brothers in any other way than just pure sarcasm. I'm pretty good at sarcasm, so I'm going to read this in a sarcastic way. I believe his brothers were saying, hey, Jesus... You know, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who's like you and wants to become a big shot public figure does anything in secret. Since you are doing these things here, you know what you should do? You should go show yourself to the entire world. See, even his brothers did not believe in him. So what's really going on here? Well... What's going on here is family. Family is going on here. Jesus has become a spectacle. Jesus has become an embarrassment. He's become the worst kind of embarrassment. He's become a family embarrassment. And frankly, James and his brothers wish that Jesus would just shut his mouth and find something productive to do. Quietly productive to do. After all, in their minds, Jesus is just a carpenter. 
He's just their brother. He's just Jesus. And lest we think that the family's embarrassment and their discomfort at the path that Jesus had chosen was the only thing that was going on, only a little bit of sarcasm was the result, listen to this scene in Mark chapter 3. Verse 20, we read this. Jesus entered a house, and again a large crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. See, James and the rest of the family had been, become so concerned and so embarrassed that they wanted to take charge of Jesus. They wanted to take control of Jesus. They believed Jesus was delusional. They thought he was crazy. If this was taking place today, if this was in one of our families, you'd probably have it reported this way. They were wanting to have Jesus committed His family wanted to have him committed for his own good, but probably most importantly for the family's own good, for the good of the family and its reputation. And how does Jesus respond? How does he respond to his brother's concern? Well, he responds in what I think is a very interesting way. He responds by completely redefining family. Jesus makes it clear for him, family isn't just about flesh and blood. It's not just about DNA. For Jesus, family are those who do God's will. Family are those who obey God. Family are those who are obedient to the, obedient to the Father. We're still in Mark chapter 3. As we pick the story up here, the teachers of the law have just accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. They've accused Jesus of using Satan's powers to perform his miracles. And then we read this in verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my brothers and mother? He asked. Then he looked at those who were seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is redefining family. And membership in Jesus' family is all about the father of the family. See, those who choose God and choose his will are his sons and they are his daughters. And since they are daughters of God, they are brothers and sisters of God's son. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. See, choosing God means choosing his son, and choosing to follow God means choosing to follow his son, Jesus. And unfortunately, unfortunately, James and his brothers choose not to follow. They're among those who heard Jesus' words but chose not to do his will. So then as Jesus continues towards the cross... It seems that the final chapter in this family drama, the final chapter in actually this family tragedy, has been written. And it looks like James and his brothers are destined to be just a sad footnote in Jesus' story. A footnote that reads this way. Even his own brothers did not believe in him. Or as Jesus said in Mark chapter 6, only in his hometown... Among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. 
Well, we know the story doesn't end there. We know that for many reasons, and one is because we're about to do an entire sermon series about a letter written by James, Jesus' little brother. So we know this doesn't close the book on James. It doesn't close the book on his brothers. We know that Jesus' brothers end up as much more, much more than a sad footnote to Jesus' story. So the obvious question is, what happened? What went on? What changed things for James and his brothers? How do we move from James the unbeliever to James the Christian author? What happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. What happened was the cross. What happened was the empty tomb. What happened was the resurrection of James's brother, Jesus. What happened was that James saw that his big brother wasn't just a carpenter. He wasn't just his brother. He wasn't just Jesus. James saw and James knew that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the promised Savior from God. And that knowledge transformed James. So let's look at that transformation. We're going to do this fairly quickly. First, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 1. At this point, the apostles had just witnessed Jesus' ascension. And so they've gone back to Jerusalem. We read this in verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. It's a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John and John's brother James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, also James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This is a collection of Jesus' disciples. This is a, a gathering of believers. This is a gathering of Jesus' family, a gathering of those who are doing God's will. And who's there? Mary's there. And her sons are there. Jesus' brothers are there. James was there. See, the resurrection happened and Jesus' brothers became his brothers again. Remember, Jesus said, who are my brothers? Well, our answer is these men gathered in Jerusalem doing God's will. Those are Jesus' brothers. So James is part of Jesus' family again. He's not a sad footnote to Jesus' story. In fact, James is destined to be one of those selected by God to lead his church. James is destined to be one of those selected by Jesus to move his story forward. And the seeds of James' future were planted by Jesus himself. They were planted before James walked up the stairs and was part of that gathering in the upper room. Paul lets us know what happened in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the scripture that was read earlier. Paul writes, beginning in verse 1, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believe in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. 
Then after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to, he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me, to Paul, as to one abnormally born. See, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared personally. He appeared individually to Peter. Peter, destined to be the rock of the church, destined to be the great evangelist to the Jews. He also appeared individually and personally to Paul. Paul, destined to be the great evangelist to the Gentiles and the author of much of our New Testament. And he appeared to someone else individually and personally. He appeared to James, his brother, destined to be the leader and the mentor of the Jerusalem church. I said at the beginning that James's story is a conversion story. It's a dramatic and radical conversion story. See, James has been transformed from an embarrassed little brother wanting to take control of Jesus to protect his family from shame. He's been transformed. Now he's one of Jesus' chosen leaders of his new church. Why is that? Well, the resurrection happened. The resurrection happened and James joined Peter and Paul and John as pillars in Jesus' new church. I hope by this time we have a fairly clear picture of who James was before the resurrection. But I also want to make sure that we have a very clear picture of who James was after the resurrection. So let's look at a few more scriptures to help give us a picture of who James became after Jesus' resurrection. We'll be in Acts. I'm going to start out in Acts chapter 12. Here we join the story of the early church just after Peter has miraculously escaped from prison. You remember the story, he goes to Mary's house and he knocks on the door and a servant girl comes and sees him and turns and leaves him still standing outside. And Finally, he gains entrance to the house. We read this in verse 17. Peter motioned for the people to be quiet and he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell James and the brothers about this. And then he left for another place. Peter said, tell who? Tell James about what has happened. We go forward a little bit to Acts chapter 15. This is the story about the council that met in Jerusalem. It's made up of the apostles. It's made up of elders in the church. And they're debating the necessity of circumcision for Gentile converts. There was a lot of discussion. A lot of words were said. And then in verse 13, we read this. James spoke up. He said, brothers, listen to me. And then in verse 19, he said, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Gathering of apostles, a gathering of elders, and who spoke up? James spoke up. Whose judgment was followed by the entire council of apostles and elders? James's council was followed. Another thing that we learn about James, Acts 21. We've moved into Acts where we're talking mostly about Paul. And Paul and his companions have arrived in Jerusalem at the end of the third missionary journey. In verse 17, Luke writes this. He said, when we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see 
went to see James and all the elders were present. Who did Paul and his companions go see? Well, they went to see James. James and the elders. See, the picture we have is James, the unbelieving brother. James, the embarrassed brother. That James doesn't exist anymore. Now, in his place stands James, a man that we know from these passages and from other church history, a man who became the backbone of the Jerusalem church. He became the elder of elders, if you will. He became the man looked to for advice and looked to for counsel. In many ways, James became the patriarch of the Jerusalem church. And so when that church, when James's new family was scattered because of persecution, James, elder, James, leader, James, mentor, James, concerned father, he sat down and he wrote his family a letter of instruction. He wrote his family a letter that deals with universal issues that he knew that all of them would face. And we have such interest in this letter because they're universal issues that all of us face. See, James knew that they would have issues with wealth and poverty, and he knew that the disparities in those two things in the church would have effects on the church. So he sat down and he wrote a letter. And he knew that they would have issues with controlling their tongues, and he knew that uncontrolled tongues can destroy a church. So he sat down and he wrote them a letter. And he knew that the leaders of the church needed to be reminded of and needed to be aware of their special obligations so they could be the effective leaders that God wants them to be. So he sat down and he, he wrote a letter. And he knew that they would have to deal with continuing opposition from those who didn't believe. So he sat down and he wrote a letter. And he knew that they needed instruction about how to deal with and how to react to suffering, and how to deal with and react to trials, and how to deal with and react to the stresses of life. So James sat down and wrote a letter. And he knew that they would need advice about how to deal with being tempted by Satan. And so James sat down and he wrote a letter. And thank God we have that letter. See, James knew that he couldn't be with them in person. So he did what you did before there was an internet. He wrote them a letter. It was a letter that was meant to be shared. It was a letter that was meant to be treasured. It was a letter that was meant to be followed. And not surprisingly, his letter has a common theme running throughout it. And it's a theme that echoes James's big brother's definition of family. It echoes what Jesus said. It talks about that it's those who listen to the word and do what it says. That's family. That's God's family. And that's exactly what we're going to do over the next several weeks as we study this letter from James. We're going to hear his words. And we're going to hear him repeatedly call us back to his brother's teachings. Call us back to Jesus' teachings. And James isn't just asking us to hear Jesus' words, but he's asking us to do them. He's calling on us to live them. So we're going to treat this letter, we're going to treat this letter from James as our letter. Our letter that we're going to share, our letter that we're going to treasure, and our letter that we're going to commit to following.
Because we have made it very clear that we, like James, we are determined that we're going to serve the Lord. So as we begin this study of the letter of James, remember that we said that James's story is a remarkable conversion story. It's a, an amazing transformation story. And his salutation, his beginning of the letter, tells us everything we need to know about that transformation. Back to James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, that doesn't capture it. That's not what James is really saying. What James is really saying is this letter is written by James, a slave of God and a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see what's happened to James? You see what's happened to our guide over the next several weeks? See, he's no longer an unbelieving and embarrassed little brother. He's now an obedient slave of Jesus Christ. So as James writes his letters, we see that James is no longer trying to take control of Jesus. What James has done, he's allowed Jesus to take control of him. And isn't that exactly what we've committed to do? Isn't that exactly what we have said we're going to do? We're going to quit trying to control our own lives. We're going to quit trying to control the lives of others. We're going to quit trying to control God. We're going to quit trying to control Jesus. And we're going to let Jesus take control of our lives. We're going to let Jesus take charge of our houses. And so as we kick off this study of James, as we look at his letter, I'm going to ask you to once more stand up and renew your commitment I'm going to ask you to stand up and renew your commitment with me by declaring that we are people and our houses are houses that are going to serve the Lord. So please stand up at this time. You'll find our theme upon the walls behind you. You'll also find the theme at the top of the bulletin. I'm going to do what we've done before. I'm going to say, Netherwood Park, choose this day whom you will serve. And I hope you will join with me in making the commitment that we will be people who serve the Lord. And so will our houses So Netherwood Park, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. May God bless you for making that commitment. Let's sing now about our walk with Jesus Christ.